0: Chapter Twenty-Two of *The Beloved Vagabond* by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Twenty-Two. I spent the night on the sofa, as the only bed in the establishment belonged to Parago. The next morning, I took my scanty belongings to my old attic, which fortunately happened to be unlet, and left my master in undisturbed possession of his apartment. In the evening. Calling to make polite inquiries as to his health, I found him still in bed, looking grimier and bristlier than the night before. My son, said he, the bread of liberty is sweet, but when you are starving you should not overeat yourself. An old French writer says, Après le plaisir vient la peine, après la peine la vertu. I've had the pain that follows pleasure, but whether I shall attain the consequential virtue I don't know. FOR THE PRESENT, HOWEVER, I AM CONDEMNED TO IT AGAINST MY WILL. How SO, I ASKED. I HAVE A GREAT DESIRE TO RISE AND SEEK THE NEPENTH OF THE CAFE D'ERFINE, BUT A WHIMSICAL FATE KEEPS ME COATLESS AND HATLESS IN A VIRTUOUS HOUSE. I AM ALSO COMPARATIVELY SHIRTLESS, WHICH DOES NOT SO MUCH MATTER. I AM AFRAID MY THINGS WON'T FIT YOU, MASTER, SAID I, SITTING ON THE EDGE OF THE BED. The only coat which the good Blanquette has preserved is the pearl-buttoned velveteen jacket in which I have fiddled away so many happy hours. Why not wear it until your bag arrives from Melford? In Arcadian villages, he replied, it commanded respect. In the Café Dauphine, I am afraid it would only excite derision. Presently, a strong odour of onions gave promise of an approaching meal, and a little while afterwards Blanquette entered with the announcement that soup was on the table. Rose, donned trousers and slippers, and went forth into the saddle to dine. Simplicity is one of the canons of high art; life is an art, as I have endeavored to teach you. Therefore in life we should aim at simplicity. To complicate existence into the intricacy of a steam engine with white ties and red socks is an offence against art of which I will never again be guilty. It is also more comfortable to eat soup with your elbows on the table, n'est-ce pas, Blanquette. Bien sûr, she replied, bending over her bowl. Where else could one put them? This pleased Parago, who continued to talk in high good humour during the rest of the meal. Afterwards he filled a new porcelain pipe which Blanquette had purchased and smoked contentedly the rest of the evening. Blanquette sat dutifully on a straight-backed chair, her hands in her lap, listening, as she had so often done before, to our inspiring conversation, and adding her word, whenever it entered the area of her comprehension. If we had lectured each other alternately on the integral calculus, Blanquette would have given us her rapt and happy attention. This evening she would not have minded our talking English. The mere sound of the master's voice was sweet, sweeter than ever, now that the other woman had been planted there. She thought of it with a fierce joy, and the master had come back to her for ever and ever, in saeculo saeculorum, Amen. Like many peasant women of strong nature, she had the terrible passion of possession. In her soul, she would rather have had the most degraded of Paragos in her arms, as her own unalienable property, than have seen him honourable and prosperous in the arms of another. Had she been of a nervous and emotional temperament, there might have been tragedy in the Rue des Saladiers, and the newspapers of Paris might have chronicled yet another crime passionnel, and the appearance of Blanquette before a weeping jury. But the days of tragedy were over. Paragot thundered invectives against insincerity in art. We were discussing my famous mythological picture still on the easel of Mignol-Monton, and Blanquette beamed approval. She remarked, referring to my picture, that she didn't like so many unclad ladies. It was not decent. Besides, if they lay in the grass like that, they would catch cold. And they have no pocket -er handkerchiefs to blow their noses, cried Paragot. At Blanquette's sense of humour being tickled, she screamed with laughter. Narcisse sprang from sleep and barked, and there reigned great happiness, in which even I, still reproachable of my master, have my share. "'What a thing it is to be at home!' observed Pelligot. "'I've never heard him utter so domestic a sentiment. "'After pleasure follows pain, and after pain comes virtue. "'This is virtue with a vengeance,' I reflected cynically. Bien sûr, was Blanquette's inevitable response. When she bade us good-night, Parigot drew her down and kissed her cheek, which was an unprecedented mark of domesticity. Blanquette turned brick-red, and I suppose her foolish heart beat wildly. I have known my own heart to beat wildly for far less, and I am not a woman. But I have been in love. It is because you belong to me, my little Blanquette, and I am among mine own people. We understand one another, don't we? Et tout comprends, c'est tout pardonné. When she had gone, he smoked reflectively for a few moments. I never realised till now, said he, the sense of stability and comfort that Blanquette affords me. She is unchangeable. God has given her a sense whereby she has pierced to the innermost thing that is I, and externals don't matter. She has got nearer the true pedagogue than you, my son, although I know you love me. What is the true paragon master i asked well there are only two that know it blanquette and the bon dieu i don't i only know said i that i owe my life to you and that i love you more than anyone else in the world even more than madame de voigny he asked with a smile i blushed she is different said i quite different he assented after a long pause my son he added It is right that you should know why the end came. One generally keeps these things to oneself, but I see you are blaming me, and a barrier may grow up between us which we should both regret. You think I have treated your dear lady most cruelly. I can't judge you, master, said I, terribly embarrassed. But you do, said he. Carragher was in one of his rare gentle moods. He spoke softly, without a trace of reproach or irony. He spoke to lying pipe in mouth on the old rep sofa instead of walking about the room he told me his story did I repeat it they had escaped a lifelong misery but on the other hand they had lost a lifelong dream she was still in his eyes all that is beautiful and exquisite in woman but she was not the woman that Berzileau's Nebidad Paragot could love the twain had been romantic walking in the valley of illusion willfully blinding their eyes to the irony of things real. Love had flown far from them during the silent years, and they had mistaken the afterglow of his wings for the living radiance. They had begun to realise the desolate truth. They read it in each other's eyes. She had been too loyal to speak. She would have married him, hoping, as a woman hopes, against hope. Arago, whose soul revolted from pretense preferring real mire to sham down, fled from the piteous tragedy. He might have retired more conventionally. He might have had a dismal explanatory interview with Joanna and ordered a fly to convey himself and his luggage to the railway station the next morning. Perhaps if Joanna had found him in the November Sunday afternoon garden, this might have occurred. Joanna did not find him. His temperament found him instead. And when you have a temperament like Parago's, it plays the very deuce with convention. It drew him out of the garden, across the channel, and into the society of Boubou le Vancouver. But all the same, in the essential act of leaving Melford, Paragot behaved like the man of fine honour I should always maintain him to be. How many men of specter's reputation, though feeling the pinch of poverty, would not have married Joanna for the great wealth her husband left behind? Answer me that. I know that Gianna wept bitterly over her lost romance, but she is owned to me that the words written on a scrap of paper by Padigo and posted from London were tragically true. My dear, it is only the shadows of our past selves that love. You and I are strangers to each other. To continue this sweet pretense of love is a mockery of the holiest. God bless you. Gaston. If you love a dream-woman, said Parago, let her stay the divine woman of the dream. To awaken and clasp flesh and blood, no matter how delicately tender, and find that love has sped at the dawn, is a misery too deep for tears. Parago, lying unshaven, unwashed, in grimy shirt and trousers, spoke silently, and stared into a future in which the dear sweet dream-woman, with the little feet so adored, would never, never again have a place. If I had a coat to my back, said he, after nearly half an hour's silence, I verily believe I would go to the Neuf and talk to Henri IV. Le Fourier had given me a commission for a front page in colours, and I was deep in the disreputable task on the following evening when Paragot appeared in my attic. He wore a jacket, his bag having arrived from Melford. My soul hungers, said he, for the Café Delphine, and my throat thirsts for sociable alcohol. If you can cease the prostitution of your art to a salacious public for an hour or two, I shall be very glad of your company. I think it's rather good, said I complacently, regarding the drawing with head bent sideways. It's an old theme, but it's up to date. At Janos, they would say it was palpitating with modernity. ''That's what makes it vile,'' said Perigo. We were thrown into immediate argument. One of the flying art notions of the hour was to revive the old subjects which contained the eternal essentials of life and present them in palpitatingly modern form. I eloquently developed my thesis. We were sick to death, for instance, of the quasi-scriptural prodigal son sitting half-naked in a desert beside a swine trough. Was it not more palpitating to set the prodigal in modern Paris?'' Your moderns can't palpitate with dignity, my son, replied Parago. Take Susanna and the Elders. Classically treated, the subject might yet produce one of the greatest pictures of all time. Translate it into the grocer's wife and the two church wardens, and you cannot escape from bestial vulgarity. Conscious of the wide horizon of extreme youth, I sighed at my master's narrowness. He was hopelessly behind the times. I dropped the argument and hunted for my cap. We found the Café Delphine fairly full. Madame Bois, whom the past few months had provided with a few more rolls of fat round her neck, gave a little gasp, as she caught sight of Parago, and held out her hand over the counter. Is this really you, Monsieur Parigot? One sees you no more. How is that? But it is charming. Ah! You have been en voyage. In England? On dit que c'est beau, la bas. And where will you sit? Your place is taken. It is Monsieur Papillard, the poet, who has sat there for a month. We'll find another table. There is one that is free. He pointed to a draughty, unconsidered table by the door. Arago looked at it, then at Madame Bois, and then at his own private and particular table, usurped by Monsieur Papillard and his associates, and swore a stupefied oath of considerable complication. A weird, pug-nosed, pig-eyed creature, with a goatee beard, scarce masking a receding chin, sat in the sacred seat against the wall. His satin and cloak were hung on Parago's peg. He was reading a poem to half a dozen youths who seemed all to be drinking mazagrin, or coffee in long glasses. They combined an air of intellectual intensity with one of lyrical enthusiasm, like little owls pretending to be larks. Not one of the old set was there to smile a welcome. We stood by the counter, listening to the poem. When Monsieur Papillard had ended, the youths broke into applause. C'est superbe, un chef d'oeuvre, cher maître. All the pug-nosed creature, cher maître. It is demented idiocy, murmured my astounded master. At that moment entered Felicien Gabure, a down-at-heel elderly man who had been wont to sit at Parago's table. He was one of those parasitic personages not unknown in the quartier who contrived to attach themselves to the special circle of a café, and to drink as much as possible at other people's expense. His education and intelligence would have disgraced a Paris cabman, but an ironical providence had invested him with an air of wisdom, which gave to his flattery the value of profound criticism. This sycophant greeted us with effusion. Where have we been? Why had the delightful band been dispersed? Did we know Monsieur Pabillard, the great poet? All we could reply, he approached the chair. Chere Maître, permit me to present to you my friends Monsieur Berzeliot Paragon and Monsieur Asticot. Enchanté, Monsieur, said the great poet urbanely. We likewise avowed our enchantment, and Paragon swore beneath his breath. The waiter, no longer Hercule, who had been dismissed for petty thievery some time before, but a new waiter who did not know Paragon, set us chairs at the end of the table far away from the great man. We ordered drinks. Parago emptied his glass in an absent-minded manner, still under the shock of his downfall. But a few short months ago he had ruled in this place as king. Now he was patronisingly presented to the snub-nosed idiot usurper by Felicien Galbure. His friend, Basilio Parago, nom de Dieu, and he was assigned a humble place below the salt. Verily, the world was upside down. Give me another grog, said Padigo, a double one. The poet read another poem. It was something about topazes and serpents and the twilight and the pink palms of a negress. More I could not gather. The company hailed it as another masterpiece. Finission Galbure called it a supreme effort of genius. The young man beside Padigo vaunted its witchery of suggestion. It is absolute nonsense, cried my master. But it is symbolism, monsieur, replied the young man in a tone of indulgent pity. What does it mean? The young man, he was very kind, smiled and shrugged his shoulders politely. What in common speech is the meaning of one of Bach's fugues or Claude Monet's effects of sunlight? I cannot say. They appeal direct to the soul. So does a subtle harmony of words, using words as notes of music or pigments, what you will, arranged by the magic of a master. These things are transcendental, monsieur. Sabade Popet, breathed Perigo. My little elastico, he whispered to me, have I really come to this to sit at the feet of an acting prose sub vice deputy infant Gamaliel and be taught the elements of symbolic poetry? But, master, said I, somewhat captivated by the balderdash. There is, after all, colour in words. Don't you remember how delighted you were with the name of little town we passed through on our way to Orléans? Romorantin? You were haunted by it, and said it was like the purple note of an organ. It shows you, my son, that I was aware of the jargon of symbolism before these goslings were hatched, he replied. He drained his tumbler, called the waiter, and paid the reckoning. Let us go to pere louvios in the Alle, where we can meet some real men and women we went and the cafe delphine knew Padigo no more after this he took to frequenting indiscriminately the various cafes of the neighbourhood wandering from one to the other like a lost soul seeking a habitation now and again he hit upon fragments of the old band who had migrated from the cafe delphine when it became the home of the symbolic poets He tried in vain to collect the fragments together in a new hostelry, but the cohesive force had gone. These queer circles of the Latin Quarter are organisms of spontaneous growth. You cannot create them artificially or recreate them when once they are disintegrated. The twos and threes of students received him kindly and listened to his talk, but his authority was gone. Once or twice when I accompanied him, I fancied that he had lost also the peculiar magic of his vehement utterances. Cazalet also noticed a change. What is the matter with Paragot? He no longer talks. He preaches. Sa nuit à la fin. Paragot a bore? It was unimaginable. Was he paying the penalty of his past respectability? Had Melford repressed his noble rage and frozen the genial current of his soul? It is not unlikely he often found himself condemned to solitary toping over a stained newspaper, one of the most unbleeful joys known to man. Sometimes he played dominoes with Felicien Gabur, now icily received by the symbolists on account of an unpaid score. Whether desperation drove him occasionally to Boubou Le Vancoeur and his friends, I do not know. He was not really proud of his acquaintances with Boubou. Once he whimsically remarked, that as he was half-way between Gaston de Narac and, and berselieu Parago, and therefore neither fish nor fowl, he could not find an appropriate hole in Paris. When his hair, and his beard, and his fingernails had attained their old luxuriance of growth, and he was in every way Parago again, the desired haven remained still unfindable. There were taverns without number and drink in oceans, and the life of Paris surged up and down the boulevards as stimulating as ever but the heart of Perrigo cried out for something different. He took the old violin from its dirty case and spent hours in the Rue des Saladiers trying to fiddle the divine despair out of his system. Sometimes he would call upon Blanquette to accompany him on her almost forgotten zither. One day he was with me at the café opposite Jeannot's when two or three of the studio came in and sat at our table. There was the usual eager talk. The subject... THE NEW IMPRESSIONISM. "'But to understand it you must be in the movement,' cried Fougere, not dreaming of discourtesy. But took the saying to heart. "'I see it now,' said he afterwards. "'I am no longer in the movement. "'You young men have passed me by. "'I am left stranded. "'You may ask why I don't seek the company of my own contemporaries. "'Who are they that know me, save worthless rags like Félicien Galbure?' "'Stranded, my son.' I have had my day. After that, he refused to talk at such social gatherings as chance afforded, and moodily listened while he consumed profitless alcohol. Then he began to frequent the low-life cafes of the Al. When he had nearly poisoned himself with vile absinthe, and sickened himself with the conversation of fishwives, he sent for me in despair. I found him half-dressed, walking up and down the salon. He looked very ill. "'I'm going to leave Paris today,' he began, as soon as I entered. "'It is a city of Dead Sea Apples. "'It has no place for me, save the sewer. "'I don't like the sewer. "'I'm going away. "'I shall never come back to Paris again.' "'But where are you going, master?' I asked in some surprise. "'He did not know. "'He would pack his bundle and flee like Christian from the accursed city. "'Like Christian he would go on a pilgrim's progress.' He would seek sweet, pure things. He would go forth and work in the fields. The old life had come to an end. The sow had been mistaken. He could not return to its wallowing in the mire. Wallowing was disgustful. Was ever man in such a position? The vagabond life had made the conventions of civilization impossible. The contact with convention and clean English ways had killed his zest for the old order, of which only the mud remained. There was nothing for it but to leave Paris. He poured out his heart to me in a torrent of excited words, here and there none too coherent. He must work. He had lost the great art by which he was to cover Europe with palaces. That was no longer. My God, said he, stopping short, the true knowledge of it has only come to me lately. I was living in a fool's paradise. I could never have designed a building. I should have lived on her bounty. Thank God I was saved the shame of it. He went on again he repeated his intention of leaving paris i must look after blanquette for the present he must go and dree his weird alone and yet my little astico it is the dreadful loneliness that frightens me once i had a dream it sufficed me but now my soul is empty a man needs a woman in his life even a dream woman but for me Nini, Sefini, c'est fini there is not a woman of the wide world who would look at me now "'Master,' said I, "'you are going to settle down in the country. "'Why don't you marry Blanquette?' <laughs> "'Marry Blanquette? Ma... "'He regarded me in simple, undisguised amazement, "'which took his breath away. "'He passed his hand through his hair "'and sat on the nearest seat. Non de Dieu, said he, "'I never thought of it. "'Then he leaped up and caught me in the old way "'by the shoulders and cried in French, "'as he did in moments of great excitement, "'But it's colossal, that idea. "'It is the solution of everything.' and I never thought of it, though it has been staring me in the face. Why, I love her, our little Blanquette. I have loved her all the time, without knowing it, as the good Monsieur Jourdain spoke prose. Sacre nom d'un petit bonhomme. Why didn't you tell me before, confounded little animal that you are? He swung me with a laugh to the other side of the room, and waved his arms grotesquely, as he continued his dithyrambic eulogy of the colossal idea. I have never seen two minutes produce a greater change in a human countenance. Ten years fell from it. He looked even younger than when he had broken his fiddle over Mr. Pogson's head and received the inspiration of our vagabondage. His blue eyes cleared, and in them shone the miraculous light of laughter. But it was written, my son, Astico, it was preordained. She is the one woman in the world to whom I need not pretend to be other than I am. She is real, not what she says is Blanquette, what she does is Blanquette, and her sayings and doings would grace the greatest queen in Christendom. But have you thought of it? I have come indeed to the end of my journey. I started out to find truth, the reality of things. I have found it. I have found it, my son. It is a woman, strong and steadfast, who looks into your eyes, who can help a man to accomplish his destiny. And the destiny of man is to work and to beget strong children. And his reward is to have the light in the wife's eyes and the welcome of a child's voice as he crosses the threshold of his house. And it cleanses a man. But Blanquette! He smote his forehead and burst into excited laughter. Why did it not enter into this idiot head before? The laughter ceased all of a sudden, and at least three years returned to his face. It takes two parties to make a marriage, said he in a chastened tone. Blanquette is young, I am not. She may be thinking of a future quite different. It is all very well to say I will marry Blanquette, but will Blanquette marry me? Master, said I, feeling a person of elderly experience, it was entirely on your account that Blanquette refused the Gallier at the corner of the street. I had learned from her the day before that the superior hardware merchant had recently made her a ceremonious offer of marriage. Well, a sense of duty, perhaps, said Paragot. I laughed at his seriousness. But, Master, she's been eating her heart out for you since the wedding at Chambury. Astico, said he, planting himself in front of me, are you jesting or speaking what you know to be the truth? The absolute truth. And you never told me? You knew that a real woman loved me, and you let me chase a will-o'-the-wisp with gloves and an umbrella? Truly a man's foes are of his own household. But, Master, I began, he laughed at the sight of my dejected face. No, you were loyal, my son. The man who gives away a woman's confidence, even when she avows the poisoning of her husband and the strangulation of her babes, is a transpontine villain. He took up his porcelain pipe and filled it with the blue packet of corporal that lay on the table with the oilskin cover. He struck a match and was about to apply it to the bowl when one of the sudden ideas caused him to blow out the match and lay down the pack. Then, with his old lightning swiftness, he strode to the door and flung it open. Blanquette! Blanquette! he cried. Oui, maître! came from the kitchen, and in a moment Blanquette entered the room. He took her by the hand and led her to the centre, while she regarded him somewhat mystified. With his heels together he made her a correct bow. Blanquette, said he, in the presence of Asticot as witness, I ask you to do me the honour To become my wife. It was magnificent. It was what Paraguay would have called vieille école, but it was not tactful. It was half an hour before Blanquette fully grasped the situation. End of chapter 22